Thank you, Pete, for leading us today and uh, bringing out the suffering of the Lord. And the Lord left us as an exa- himself as an example of the suffering. And uh, what better church to go to than to the church at Smyrna to have a look at the suffering that they they went through, but all, also that we can go through and will go through one day. So please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. This morning we're looking at this letter to the Smyrna church, the Smyrnians. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up, the Smyrnians. You might remember from a couple of weeks ago that the Lord is amongst the church. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 20, where it says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches and that he is in the midst of these churches. He's in the midst of every church. He is the head of the church. And the risen Lord, last time we saw, he looked at a church at Ephesus that from the outside looked wonderful church. It was doing everything that it could possibly do. If you walked into that church in Ephesus, you would have said, this is the church for me. But the Lord said, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. And so that's what we looked at last time. Interestingly, this church, the church at Smyrna, it doesn't have a a condemnation from the Lord. The same as the church in Philadelphia. Out of the seven, these two, the Smyrna church and the Philadelphian church, didn't have a but in there. Didn't have a but you did this. This is what I see. So here we have the risen Lord walking amongst this church in Smyrna and he has... A message for them. Now Smyrna was a, a beautiful city. It was between Ephesus and Smyrna, though it was like a competition, which is the greatest and the best city. And Smyrna had a famous street paved with gold that went right through the city. On each side, unfortunately, were lots of different religions and idols and uh, worship that was happening. The city possessed a famous stadium, an impressive library. They laid claim to the, to the largest public theatre in all Asia Minor. They were really a massive big city for that time. But they also were a city that were very loyal to the Roman Empire. In fact, this city of Smyrna was the first city in Asia Minor to worship the Roman Emperor. They uh, seemed to be always on the side of the winning side. They were pretty smart. When the Greeks were there, they were very Greek. When the Romans took over, they were very Roman. In fact, as I said, they were the first city to set up a temple to the reign of Tiberius, and they called it Roman um, to the Roman emperor. So it's very hard for us as we sit here in the 21st century to understand this church at Smyrna. So I'm going to ask you to use your sanctified imagination because we are so comfortable here in the 21st century to try and put a picture of what this church was going through. So use your imagination if you can. What would you do if when you first became a Christian all those years ago that people started persecuting you straight away? They started slandering you. And worst of all, you lost all your possessions. What would you do if Asio came into the church this morning and they came in with their guns and aimed at you and said, bow down and burn incense and say, Malcolm Turnbull is Lord? What would you do? 
And if you refused, at best you wouldn't be allowed to go to Costco or Aldi to buy anything. At worst, you could be put to death. For some, not being able to Costco would be worse than, go to Costco is probably worse than death, but you wouldn't be allowed to go and buy anything. What would you do if the JWs and the Mormons were roaming the streets? They were actually ASIO spies and they would go back to Asia and say, this group aren't, aren't worshipping Malcolm Turnbull. What if people just slandered you the whole time? What would you do if you were thrown in prison just for the sake of being a Christian? And I ask you to use your sanctified imagination because that doesn't happen to us. But what would you think about God if it did? If you sat here this morning and we were, the doors were closed, you're poor, you're sitting here, you haven't got two pennies to rub together... What would you think about God? Would you continue to keep the faith as a church, as a person, or would you compromise your faith to stay alive? I can't answer that for you, but I would say there may be fewer people here if persecution was happening in the church. The fact is the church at Smyrna were experiencing all the things I just mentioned they were experiencing suffering and pressure and slander and poverty just to continue to be called a Christian. So I ask you this morning to listen to the scripture. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is important. So look at Revelation 2.8 with me. And the angel, or the messenger, of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Now again, just to reiterate on what we started last time, as with the letters to the seven churches, Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ, is the author. And I know he's the risen Jesus Christ because the description for the beginning of each church is what we've already seen in chapter 1. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Just look at chapter 1, verse 17. See, the Lord is describing himself to each church in the vision that John has already given. One seventeen. when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He's saying there's no need to be afraid to this church of Smyrna, because I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one, I was dead, and now I'm alive. Not only alive, but alive forevermore. And so our alive forevermore Lord says to the Smyrna church, back in chapter 2, verse 9, this is what he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, some of your scriptures has, I know, your works or your deeds. It's not in every transcript, so I'm not going to worry too much about it. But I know your works. He knows because he's walking amongst the people. He can see not only the, what's happening on the outside, but the inside. And so we come, we have a church that he knows their deeds. He knows what they're doing. As I said, there's no condemnation from the Lord to this church. All that they're doing is good. 
All that they're doing is pleasing the Lord. There is no but. And so the works that they're doing is pleasing the Lord. But they're going through things. They're going through things that the Lord wants to just give them some courage with. And the first thing that they are going through is the Lord knows that they're in the middle of a tribulation. Now, this tribulation is not the one that is going to happen in chapter 4. It's not the tribulation, the great tribulation that we'll be looking at in times to come. This tribulation that they're going through is referring to troubles and afflictions and difficulties that come upon every one of you. In fact, Jesus said in John 16.33, In the world you will have tribulation. Not you might have, you will have. But the Lord says, be of, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So in the world you're going to have tribulation. And this church is no different, it's going through tribulation, trials. Remember what James said, count it all joy when you go through trials. Not because the trials are joyful, but because it's for the building up of your faith. And it's no difference to this church. But what a comfort it must have been to the Christians in Smyrna as they read this letter to know that Christ knows all about their sufferings. He knows what they're going through. I wonder if you've ever been in a, in, in a situation where you're going through a tough time. Maybe you're going through one right now. And you've got so lonely and so withdrawn that sometimes you're tempted, tempted to think, I wonder if anyone really understands what I'm going through. I wonder if you get to that point and you say that to yourself. I wonder if anyone understands. I wonder if anyone really cares what I'm going through. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is someone who knows and cares what you're going through and he loves you. And that one is alive forevermore notwithstanding the fact that we as Christians are, should be bearing each other's burdens, but sometimes when you're going through what you're going through, you might not share with us. But if you don't, then the Lord is there. You see, the church at Smyrna weren't having an easy time of it. In fact, the immediate prospect was one of suffering. The immediate prospect for this church was one of death. This is a certainty, a fact a fact which has lessons for those of us who live in comparative ease, as we do today. And Jesus, who is alive forevermore, says, I know what you're going through. But we have scriptures today that help us. Because he says today, here in the book, here in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 5, he says, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. And so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? That's from Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Do you believe that? Do you honestly believe that God will never fail you, will never abandon you? And so you can have confidence to say whatever situation you're in, the Lord is my helper, so I'm not going to fear. What can mere people do to me? We need to believe that to be able to get through the tribulations that we know will be upon us. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. God has overcome the world. 
The second thing the Lord knew of the Smyrna church was their poverty. He says, I know your poverty. He saw it. He saw how poor they were. You see, Smyrna was, as I said, an important centre of the Roman imperial cult. And so every year in Smyrna, every person who lived there were required by Roman law to pay an amount of money to burn incense and they were required to say, Caesar is Lord. They had to say that. And if anyone refused to acknowledge that Caesar as Lord, they'd be excluded from the guilds. In other words, they couldn't buy, they couldn't sell their goods, they weren't allowed to do anything that needed a a part of the guild. In other words, we can call it unemployment today, we can call it poverty. You know, Polycarp was a pastor of Smyrna. He was a pastor about the time of what was happening here. In fact, Polycarp was a uh, a disciple of John. So we have a a link here between John, who wrote Revelation with God, and Polycarp, who was his disciple. So Polycarp was the, the pastor at Smyrna. And we have written down that some members of his congregation were arguing and saying, we must burn incense to this pagan god even though we're Christian. We just have to do it. We'll, we'll do it, but we won't mean it. We'll bow down, but inside we won't mean it. Polycarp said, why? And they said, because we have to work. Polycarp said, why do you have to work? And the people said, because we have to eat. Polycarp said, why do you have to eat? And they said, because we have to live. And so Polycarp, the pastor, looked at them and said, no, you don't have to work. You don't have to eat and you don't have to live. The only thing you have to do is be faithful to God. And that's what these Christians in Smyrna were being. Faithful to God. They couldn't eat, they couldn't work, they couldn't struggle to live because they were poor. Again, using the sanctified imagination that God has given you, how would you go in this situation when you couldn't work couldn't buy food. The poverty of the Smyrnaeans was extreme because they would not say Caesar is Lord. Yet the risen Christ says what in verse 9? He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Now these people weren't just poor. I want you to understand that. See, the widow who gave those two mites, remember that widow who gave the two mites? She was poor, and that was the word penacross that was used. But the Lord uses a different word here, a different Greek word, to mean that they were even more poor. This word, poverty, was used for people who begged. They didn't even have those two mites to rub together that the the poor widow had. You see, when you... If there's no Caesar is Lord, then there's no selling, no buying, no having anything. Abject poverty, possessing absolutely nothing. And so they were poor. For a comparison, I want you to jump ahead and look at the Laodicean church. Look at chapter 3, verse 17 with me. Here's what the Lord says of this church in verse 17. 
Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, the Laodicean church, they were rich. They they needed nothing. They have need of nothing. But what did Jesus say about them? I'm sorry, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked. Now compare for just a moment these two churches. A struggling, dirt-poor Smyrna church didn't have two mites to rub together, any of them. And Jesus looked at this church and he said, You guys are rich. The Laodicean, well, they were very wealthy. They said, we don't need anything. And Jesus looked at them and said, you might be rich, but you're actually poor, wretched, blind and miserable and you don't even know it. Let me tell you, it's a whole lot better to be the church at Smyrna than the church at Laodicea. Why do I say that? Because I myself would rather be rich in Christ and have nothing, then have everything that this world can offer and be wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked in the sight of God. Now that doesn't mean, and we'll get to that when we get to the Laodicean church, it doesn't mean riches are bad, it means the Laodicean church put all their faith in their riches. And because of that, They were blind and naked. They had nothing inside of the Lord. See, being rich in Christ means we live eternal values that will never change. Being rich in Christ means we live for riches that can never be taken away. We have an inheritance already there where moth and rust cannot hurt it at all. And we're rich in Christ Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know, compared to the Smyrna church, we here at NCC, we have so much. And so we too, like the Laodiceans, must be very careful that we don't become so presumptuous that we get to the point where we think we don't need anything or anyone, including God. And when we get to that point, or if we get to that point, what are we? Well, you'll be miserable. You'll be, you'll be wretched, you'll be poor, blind and naked. And so they were very poor. But they were rich. Rich in Christ looking forward to that time when they would be with the Lord. There's also a third thing the Christians in Smyrna were facing as part of their affliction. They faced tribulation and poverty, but they also faced religious vilification. The rest of verse 9 says, I know the blasphemy, blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue or a congregation of Satan. Now this is a great reminder that our struggles are not with flesh and blood. Our struggles are with our enemy, Satan. Satan uses people to accomplish what he's going to do, in this case uh, the congregation of Jews, 
that they were a congregation of Satan. Ephesians 6.12, you might remember that, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so our struggle and the, the church of Smyrna's struggle was not against these Jews who are not Jews, but against Satan. Religiously, many in the Jewish community were being used by Satan to vilify this church and the Lord. And it's not like, unto, un, not like today, um, it is like today, where you stick with the word, you stick with the truth of the scriptures, and you become very narrow-minded, or you become a bigot, because you, st- you stick with the scripture that we have in front of us. And we can be vilified by other churches, by others who may not stick to the truth. These people that were of the synagogue were Jews by birth, but not by faith. Abraham was not their spiritual father. Satan himself was their spiritual father. Listen to John 8:44. This is what the Lord said to the Jews then. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus called Satan or the devil, the the Jews, the father, their father was the devil. The hostility of these Jews towards the Christians in Smyrna came out in their zeal when on a Sabbath day where they should have been uh, resting in their, as their Jew, Jewishness would want them to be, that when Polycarp was murdered on that Sabbath, they gathered wood and sticks and to, to actually burn Polycarp back in 155 AD. So behind these Jews stands Satan. But behind Satan stands who? God. And God has and always will have the final control. This vilification might have been the devil's actions through these people, but it, is, it always has God's intention. And because God is in control, the Lord says to them in verse 10, Do not fear. Why are they not to fear? Because God's control does not mean that Satan prevented, is prevented from inflicting pain and hurt. And we know that from the book of Job that Pete brought up last week. We know that Satan is not prevented from inflicting pain and hurt. In Job's case, his Lord said, just don't take his life. You see, nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere does it promise that you will be free from suffering in this life? In fact, it goes out, out of its way to tell us there will be trials, there will be tribulation. But it's how we handle those trials and handle those tribulations because as the Christians in Smyrna, we're no different. Verse 10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So they're going to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison 
so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, believe it or not, this should be an encouragement to the church. You say, how could that be an encouragement? Do not fear because you are about to suffer. The devil's going to cast some of you into prison. Well, the reason that that would be an assurance is because the risen Lord knew the devil's plans. And the risen Lord is in complete control of the situation. And the Lord even told them in this case why they were going to go through it. Can you see it in the verse there? Even through the devil and evil men, the Lord works out his purposes. The imprisonment was so that you will be tested. It's very much like James. James and and John could have written side by side where James says exactly the same thing. (coughs) You will be tested. But I want you to see the clear implication of that, and that is that God will see them through the test. You will have tribulation for ten days. You wouldn't believe the theologian discussion on what it means, this ten days means. Uh, You can write a book on it. Some people say it's some ten days means sometimes into the future. Uh, Ten days signifies not ten days but a brief time. Uh, Ten days may well point to the completion of their suffering. And it goes on and on. Do you know what I think this ten days means? Ten days. Let's, Let's take it at God's word. And the problem is, if all you can ask is what does ten days mean, then you're missing the whole point of this scripture. What is the point of saying there will be tribulation for ten days? Because God sets a limit on what Satan can do to believers. You see, no force or power on earth could make this last eleven days. Nothing can make this last eleven days. It was ten days that our Lord had determined for their test. It will be for ten days which is another reminder that our Lord Jesus Christ, not the devil, is in control of the situation at Smyrna. And he is in control of the situation here at New Community. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, says you are going to suffer persecution, but it's going to be for a set time, so hang in there. Don't give up. Does that mean the church at Smyrna will never suffer beyond those ten days? No, history tells us otherwise. What this verse is saying is that when the Christians of Smyrna received this letter about 95 to 96 AD, they had to prepare themselves for a test. But the suffering will continue at other times. As I mentioned earlier, Polycarp, the pastor of the church at Smyrna, in 155 AD was arrested in one of the Roman persecution periods and Polycarp was commanded to declare in a public place that Caesar is Lord and this is what he said it's been written down for us 80 and 6 years have I served him and he that is Jesus never did me any harm how then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour 
And the Roman proconsul said, if you will not confess Caesar as Lord, I will burn you in the fire. And Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring forth what you will. It even says that he asked not to be tied up because he believed that the Lord will help him to stay there. You know, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. Blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. Let's face it, this church was persecuted. But are we being such strong Christians in our age today? Because if we continue to be salt and light, if we as a church continue to stand up for the scriptures, to stand up for what is right, as the world gets worse and worse by the hour, we will suffer persecution. The Lord says we will. It is coming. But the assurance that we all have, as well as the church in Smyrna, is do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. You're going to suffer. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. I'm going to be there with you. Do not fear. Peter wrote to us to scattered Christians who were being persecuted. You might like to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me to see there's his whole first letter is to a persecuted people. I can't read the whole lot, so I, I picked out one section, 1 Peter 3.13. As Peter also wrote to those who were suffering, 1 Peter 3.13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defence to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I love that verse and we use it all the time, always be ready to make a defence, but did you realise it's in the monks of suffering and being intimidated and being uh, troubled and in, in, intimidated? So it's not just all the time, which we should have, but when you're being intimidated and when you're, being, uh, when you're suffering, we're also to, have, uh, to be ready to make a defence. And so during their sufferings, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defence to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, what a great, it's a great book about suffering, but a, a great verse. If God should so will it that you should suffer. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, this is, 
Pete stole my, uh, my three favourite people last week, but I'm going to bring it to you again. They were told to bow down to the image of the king, weren't they? They said, no, we're not going to bow down. The king said, well, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And I love what they said to the king. This is always being ready to make a defence to everyone. So in the, the midst of being thrown in, they said, King, our God is able to deliver us. We know that. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to praise him. I wonder if we have that kind of but, if not faith, during the times we suffer. Or is it our tendency to say, if he delivers me, I will praise him. That's not what they said, was it? They said, our God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, that's okay, we will still praise him, because it's his will. They were thrown in, the fire was so hot that even the men who threw, threw them in died, but the fire only burnt the ropes, they didn't even smell like smoke. The king looked in the fiery furnace and he said, wait a minute, didn't you throw three men in? But I see four. And the fourth is like the Son of God. So let me ask you a question. Would you be rather outside the fire with the king, nice and cool and comfortable, drinking a, a nice uh, cold drink without Jesus Christ, or would you be rather in the fire with Jesus Christ? It's a question you have to contemplate and ask yourself. Will you run away and would you say, Caesar is Lord, okay, I might not mean it, but I'll say it, and therefore not in the fire? Or would you be rather in the fire with Jesus Christ? And that's why he says to these people, listen, don't be afraid, because while you are suffering, while you're going through the persecution, I'm going to be walking through the fire with you. I'll be there with you. I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. If Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego hadn't been thrown in the fire, they would have never have gotten to see Jesus face to face. And our Lord says, don't fear going through the trials. But he not only does he give that assurance from the Lord, he also sends it, says at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see how the important thing is there? Be faithful. Be faithful what you're going through. Be faithful while you're going through these trials. How important is faithfulness? How important is it standing true to Christ no matter what Satan or men might threaten to do to you, even to, to kill you or to burn you at the stake? In the midst of your pressure, in the midst of your poverty, in the midst of persecution, the Lord says, don't be afraid even unto death. He says, Satan will give you a hard time, but that's okay. He doesn't have final control over you. You be faithful, I'll give you the crown of life. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about the crowns God will give us. It's probably a sermon on its own, but there are five. The imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the crown of life, which we have here and we have in James, another verse that Pete was so kindly to bring to us last week. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. James is talking about it. Blessed are you who perseveres under the trial, for once he has been approved, once you've been tested and you've been found faithful, 
he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James tells us that this crown of life is for all those who love God, all those who are involved with suffering and trials and all those that have come through approved. Same as what we're talking about the church of Smyrna. Does that mean that throughout all eternity we're going to be wearing these crowns? No, we're not. We'll actually get to this when we get to chapters 4 and 5, but the Bible says that when Jesus raptures the church and we go to heaven, we're going to kneel before the Lamb on the throne and the Scriptures say we're going to cast our crowns at his feet. Chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So, remain faithful, Smyrnians. Remain faithful to the persecution that you're going through, the pressure, and you will receive the crown of life. Then lastly this morning, the Lord says you will not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up, this is important, he says. So remember, it's all in the singular. Listen up, you, everyone here. This is very important. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Remember from last time that he who overcomes refers to those who have accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And the Lord uses it with all the churches. And we got it from John, again, the same John, when he said, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you're a born-again believer here this morning, you are an overcomer. You have overcome. And so it says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So if you're an overcomer, if you're a born-again believer, you will not be hurt by the second death. Be encouraged. You will face death on this earth, but you won't be hurt by the second death. What is this second death? I think we need to explain it. The first death is physical. If the Lord tarries... And he doesn't come back to rapture the church in our lifetime. You and I will die physically. That's the first death. That's inevitable unless we're raptured. What then is the second death? And the second death is found in Revelation chapter 20. You might like to turn there. Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11. These verses are talking about the great white throne judgment that's going to be taking place after the, great, after the tribulation, after the thousand years uh, millennium and uh, this is going to be taking place then. So turn with me. Then I saw in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and on him sat it, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. So first of all, we notice that this is the glorified Jesus Christ on the throne of the great white throne judgment. It takes place after the battle of Armageddon, after the devil has been cast into the lake of fire. And verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, 
Now this means that these are ones who had never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Spiritually dead, I saw the spiritually dead, small and great, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And here it is in verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The first death, physical death, the second death is the lake of fire. The final judgment of the unrepentant. The final judgment of those who refuse the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. The lake of fire was never prepared for these people. It was always prepared for the devil and his angels. And we'll look at that when we get there. But even though that is the case, it will be shared by those who choose the devil's way. It will be shared by those people and they will be separated forever from God. They'll be tormented in spirit and soul by the torment that fire gives to the physical body. And you know, interestingly enough, it's what those people actually asked for all their life. People who say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't want him in my life. Well, you know, eventually they're going to be given what they have asked for. For the rest of eternity, they'll be separated from the grace and mercy and love of God in the most horrendous torment of the human spirit. That is the second death. But when you trust Jesus Christ as your saviour, when you are an overcomer, when you are born again, your name is written in that Lamb's book of life. And Jesus says back in Revelation chapter 2 verse 11, you be faithful, you trust me, and you won't have to worry about that second death. Have you ever noticed people today afraid of the first death? They do everything to put death off, don't they? They take whatever is necessary and they say, we don't want to talk about death. But I wish they were just as afraid of the second death as they are of the first death. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the second death. And as born again believers, this death will not be a part of your future. But it will be a part of the future of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. For those who are not overcomers, for those who have never given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have never accepted the, the gift that we spoke about, the gift of salvation. These are difficult days for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. We may not have it very difficult here, but we can do if we stick to the word, if we um, are a light to the world, we will suffer. But there are many churches around the world who suffer now. 
But behind the curtain of eternity, we know that Jesus is giving Satan permission to test his church, to, to, to be able to, at different times, purify us. The persecution may come from the government, it might come from irate citizens, it might come from, a religious, from the religious community, it just might come from those who hate Christians. How are we to react to this persecution? Well, the first is, don't be afraid of it. Because the glorified Jesus Christ is in full control. In fact, it's, he said the gates of hell will never overcome the church. And we're to remain faithful. That last verse, be faithful. That's what it's all about. Whatever you're going through, be faithful. Remain faithful. Remain faithful to the light of the world, to be the light of the world as his lampstand, as we spoke last time. He says, even up to the point of death. If we do that, then our Lord will give each born again believer the crown of life. We will have eternal life. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of this church that was suffering, had poverty, were being slandered about. Yet, Lord, the encouragement is that you knew them, you knew what they were going through. You asked them to be to not be afraid. You asked them to be faithful. And Father, we thank you that we can be faithful going through the sufferings that we have. Father, we don't want to denounce you even though we're suffering or going through suffering or trials or tribulation. We want to say, Lord, that we want to be faithful to you through them, even to death. And so, Father, we thank you for the encouragement that this church can be to us and the encouragement that the Lord has given not only that church but our church as well for the times of suffering that are happening now and will continue to get worse. We thank you for your living word that encourages us even from words that were written to a different church 2,000 years ago, but we are encouraged and we thank you for them in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.